Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. 
I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Liz Tamborelli, thank you so much for donating, and I'm so sorry for mispronouncing your name. Other new patrons are Hans de Bloy, Liv Warther, and Jeanette Tokars. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. For those of you who don't know, the names that I just listed are new patrons on Patreon.com, which is this awesome site where you can go and support creators of work that you really like. So you donate a dollar a month, $2 a month, maybe $5. At $5 a month with the Sleepy Podcast, you get access to a special Patreon-only poetry feed where I read you poetry twice a month just for donating, and it gets sent right to you. So if the show helps you sleep, and it maybe helps you wake up a little fresher, then maybe consider being a part of making the show by donating on patreon.com slash sleepy radio. It's also a great place to get a hold of me, and I would love to hear from you. That's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is done by Gracie Kanan. Tonight is a, a book that I've never read before, and I kind of want to get right into it. But it's uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. I don't really have much to say about this book other than it's one that I've wanted to read for a long, long time, and it's been requested by many listeners. And after skimming through it, I can tell that it's a really good book to fall asleep to. It's kind of meandering, and um, it's got this sense of adventure to it, but it's melodic, and it sounds old. So, now is the time for you to get real comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Close your eyes, and let me read to you. The year 1866 was marked by a bizarre development, an unexplained and downright inexplicable phenomenon that surely no one has forgotten. Without getting into those rumors that upset civilians in the seaports and deranged the public mind even far inland, it must be said that professional seamen were especially alarmed. Traders, ship owners, captains of vessels, Skippers and master mariners from Europe and America, naval officers from every country, and at their heels the various national governments on these two continents were all extremely disturbed by the business. In essence, over a period of time, several ships had encountered an enormous thing at sea, a long, spindle-shaped object sometimes giving off a phosphorescent glow, infinitely bigger 
and faster than any whale. The relevant data on this apparition, as recorded in various logbooks, agreed pretty closely as to the structure of the object or creature in question, its unprecedented speed of movement, its startling locomotive power, and the unique vitality with which it seemed to be gifted. If it was a cetacean, it exceeded in bulk any whale previously classified by science. No naturalist, neither Cuvier nor Lesepidi, neither Professor Dumerl nor Professor de Quatrefage would have accepted the existence of such a monster sight unseen. Specifically, unseen by their own scientific eyes, striking an average of observations taken at different times, rejecting those timid estimates that gave the object a length of 200 feet, and ignoring those exaggerated views that saw it as a mile wide and three long, you could still assert that this phenomenal creature greatly exceeded the dimensions of anything known to ichthyologists, if it existed at all. Now then, it did exist. This was an undeniable fact. And since the human mind dotes on objects of wonder, you can understand the worldwide excitement caused by this unearthly apparition. As for relegating it to the realm of fiction, that charge had to be dropped. In essence, on July 20th, 1866, the steamer, Governor Higginson, from the Calcutta and Burnock Steam Navigation Company, encountered this mass five miles off the eastern shores of Australia. Captain Baker first thought he was in the presence of an unknown reef. He was even about to fix its exact location when two waterspouts shot out of this inexplicable object and sprang hissing into the air some 150 feet. So unless this reef was subject to the intermittent eruptions of a geyser, the Governor Higginson had fair and honest dealings with some aquatic mammal, until then unknown, that could spurt from its blowholes waterspouts mixed with air and steam. Similar events were likewise observed in the Pacific Seas on July 23rd of the same year by the Christopher Columbus from the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company. Consequently, this extraordinary cetacean could transfer itself from one locality to another with startling swiftness. Since within an interval of just three days, the Governor Higginson and the Christopher Columbus had observed it at two positions on the charts, separated by a distance of more than 700 nautical leagues. Fifteen days later, and 2,000 leagues farther, the Helvetia, from the Compagnie Nationale, and the Shannon from the Royal Mail Line, running on opposite tracks in that part of the Atlantic lying between the United States and Europe, respectively signaled each other, that the monster had been sighted in latitude 42 degrees 15 north and longitude 60 degrees 35 west of the meridian of Greenwich. From their simultaneous observations, they were able to estimate the mammal's minimum length at more than 350 English feet. This was because both the Shannon 
and Helvetia were of smaller dimensions, although each measured a hundred meters stem to stern. Now then, the biggest whales, those rorqual whales that frequent the waterways of the Aleutian Islands, have never exceeded a length of 56 meters, if they reach even that. One after another, reports arrive that would profoundly affect public opinion. New observations taken by the transatlantic liner Perrier and Inman Lines Edna running afoul of the monster. An official report drawn up by the officers on the French frigate Normandy. Dead earnest reckonings obtained by the general staff of Commodore Fitzjames aboard the Lord Clyde. In light-hearted countries, people joked about this phenomenon. But such serious, practical countries as England, America, and Germany were deeply concerned. In every big city, the monster was the latest rage. They sang about it in coffee houses. They ridiculed it in newspapers. They dramatized it in the theaters. The tabloids found a fine opportunity for hatching all sorts of hoaxes. In those newspapers, short of copy, you saw the reappearance of every gigantic imaginary creature, from Moby Dick, that dreadful white whale from the high Arctic regions, to the stupendous kraken, whose tentacles could entwine a 500-ton craft and drag it into the ocean depths. They even reprinted reports from ancient times, the views of Aristotle and Pliny accepting the existence of such monsters. Then the Norwegian stories of Bishop Pontopidan, the narratives of Paul Agade, and finally the reports of Captain Harrington, whose good faith and above suspicion, and which claims he saw while aboard the Castilian in 1857, one of those enormous serpents that, until then, had frequented only the seas of France's old extremist newspaper, The Constitutionalist. An interminable debate then broke out between believers and skeptics in the scholarly societies and scientific journals. The monster question inflamed all minds. During this memorable campaign, Journalists making a profession of science battled with those making a profession of wit, spilling waves of ink, and some of them even two or three drops of blood, since they went from sea serpents to the most offensive personal remarks. For six months, the war seesawed. With inexhaustible zest, the popular press took pot shots at feature articles from the Geographic Institute of Brazil the Royal Academy of Science in Berlin, the British Association, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., the discussions in the Indian Archipelago, and Cosmos published by Father Moigno in Peterman's Mythologian, and at scientific chronicles in the great French and foreign newspapers. When the monster's detractors cited a saying by the botanist Linnaeus that nature doesn't make leaps, Witty writers in the popular periodicals parried it, maintaining in essence that nature doesn't make lunatics, and ordering their contemporaries never to give the lie to nature by believing in krakens, 
sea serpents, Moby Dicks, and other all-out efforts from drunken seamen. Finally, in a much-feared satirical journal, an article by its most popular columnist finished off the monster for good, spurning it in the style of Hippolytus, repulsing the amorous advances of stepmother Phaedra, giving the creature its quietus amid a universal burst of laughter. Wit had defeated science. During the first months of the year 1867, the question seemed to be buried, and it didn't seem due for resurrection when new facts were brought to the public's attention. But now it was no longer an issue of a scientific problem to be solved but a quite real and serious danger to be avoided. The question took an entirely new turn. The monster again became an islet, a rock, a reef, but a runaway reef, unfixed and elusive. On March 5, 1867, the Moravian from the Montreal Ocean Company, lying during the night in latitude 27 degrees 30 and longitude 72 degrees 15, ran its starboard quarter afoul of a rock marked on no charts of these waterways. Under the combined efforts of wind and 400 horsepower steam, it was traveling at a speed of 13 knots. Without the high quality of its hull, the Moravian would surely have split open from this collision and gone down together with those 237 passengers it was bringing back from Canada. This accident happened around 5 o'clock in the morning, just as day was beginning to break. The officers on watch rushed to the craft's stern. They examined the ocean with most scrupulous care. They saw nothing except a strong eddy breaking three cable lengths out as if those sheets of water had been violently churned. The site's exact bearings were taken, and the Moravian continued on course apparently undamaged. Had it run afoul of an underwater rock or the wreckage of some enormous derelict ship, they were unable to say. But when they examined its undersides in the service yard, they discovered that part of its keel had been smashed. This occurrence, extremely serious in itself, might perhaps have been forgotten like so many others if three weeks later it hadn't been reenacted under identical conditions. Only thanks to the nationality of the ship victimized by this new ramming and thanks to the reputation of the company to which the ship belonged, the event caused an immense uproar. No one was unaware of the name of that famous English ship owner, Cunard. In 1840, this shrewd industrialist founded a postal service between Liverpool and Halifax, featuring three wooden ships with 400 horsepower paddle wheels and a burden of 1,162 metric tons. Eight years later, the company's assets were increased by four 650 horsepower ships and 1,820 metric tons. In two more years, by two other vessels of still greater power and tonnage. In 1853, 
the Cunard Company, whose mail-carrying charter had just been renewed, successively added to its assets the Arabia, the Persia, the China, the Scotia, the Java, and the Russia. All ships of top speed, and after the Great Eastern, the biggest ever to plow the seas. So in 1867, this company owned 12 ships, 8 with paddle wheels and 4 with propellers. If I give these highly condensed details, it is so everyone can fully understand the importance of this maritime transportation company, known the world over for its shrewd management. No transoceanic navigational undertaking has been conducted with more ability. No business dealings have been crowned with greater success. In 26 years, Cunard ships have made 2,000 Atlantic crossings without so much as a voyage canceled, a delay recorded, a man, a craft, or even a letter lost. Accordingly, despite strong competition from France, Passengers still choose the Cunard line in preference to all others, as can be seen in a recent survey of official documents. Given this, no one will be astonished at the uproar provoked by this accident involving one of its finest steamers. On April 13, 1867, with a smooth sea and a moderate breeze, the Scotia lay in longitude 15 degrees 12 and latitude 45 degrees 37. It was traveling at a speed of 13.43 knots under the thrust of 1,000 horsepower engines. Its paddle wheels were churning the sea with perfect steadiness. It was then drawing 6.7 meters of water and displacing 6,624 cubic meters. At 4.17 in the afternoon, during high tea for passengers gathered in the main lounge, a collision occurred, scarcely noticeable on the whole, affecting the Scotia's hull and that little quarter or little astern of its port paddle wheel. The Scotia hadn't run afoul of something. It had been fouled, and by a cutting or perforating instrument rather than a blunt one, this encounter seemed so minor that nobody on board would have been disturbed by it had it not been for the shouts of the crewmen in the hold who climbed on the deck yelling, We're sinking, we're sinking. At first the passengers were quite frightened, but Captain Anderson hastened to reassure them. In fact, there could be no immediate danger. Divided into seven compartments by watertight bulkheads, the Scotia could brave any leak with impunity. Captain Anderson immediately made his way into the hold. He discovered that the fifth compartment had been invaded by the sea, and the speed of this invasion proved that the leak was considerable. Fortunately, this compartment didn't contain the boilers, because their furnaces would have been abruptly extinguished. Captain Anderson called an immediate hull, and one of his sailors dived down to assess the damage. Within moments, they had located a hole two meters in width on the steamer's underside. Such a leak could not be patched, 
with its paddle wheels half swamp, the Scotia had no choice but to continue its voyage. By then, it lay 300 miles from Cape Clear, and after three days of delay that filled Liverpool with acute anxiety, it entered the company docks. The engineers then proceeded to inspect the Scotia, which had been put in dry dock. They couldn't believe their eyes. Two and a half meters below its waterline, there gaped a symmetrical gash in the shape of an isosceles triangle. This breach in the sheet iron was so perfectly formed, no punch could have done a cleaner job of it. Consequently, it must have been produced by a perforating tool of uncommon toughness. Plus, after being launched with prodigious power and then piercing four centimeters of sheet iron, this tool had needed to withdraw itself by a backward motion truly inexplicable. This was the last straw, and it resulted in arousing public passions all over again. Indeed, from this moment on, any maritime casualty without an established cause was charged to the monster's account. This outrageous animal had to shoulder responsibility for all derelict vessels, whose numbers are unfortunately considerable, since out of those 3,000 ships, whose losses were recorded annually at the Marine Insurance Bureau, the figure for steam or sailing ships supposedly lost with all hands, in absence of any news, amounts to at least 200. Now then, justly or unjustly, it was the monster who stood accused of their disappearance, and since, thanks to it, travel between the various continents had become more and more dangerous. The public spoke up and demanded straight out that at all costs the seas be purged of this fearsome cetacean. The Pros and Cons During the period in which these developments were occurring, I had returned from a scientific undertaking organized to explore the Nebraska Badlands in the United States. In my capacity as assistant professor at the Paris Museum of Natural History, I had been attached to this expedition by the French government. After spending six months in Nebraska, I arrived in New York, laden with valuable collections near the end of March. My departure for France was set for early May. In the meantime, then, I was busy classifying mineralogical, botanical, and zoological treasures that, when that incident took place with the Scotia. I was perfectly abreast of this question, which was the big news of the day, and how could I not have been? I had read and reread every American and European newspaper without being any farther along. This mystery puzzled me. Finding it impossible to form any views, I had drifted from one extreme to the other. Something was out there, that much was certain, and any doubting Thomas was invited to place his finger on the Scotia's wound. When I arrived in New York, the question was at a boiling point. The hypothesis of a drifting islet 
or an elusive reef put forward by people not quite in their right minds was completely eliminated. Indeed, unless this reef had an engine in its belly, how could it move about with such prodigious speed? Also, discredited was the idea of a floating hull or some other enormous wreckage, and again, because of this speed of movement. So only two possible solutions to the question were left, creating two very distinct groups of supporters. On one side, those favoring a monster of colossal strength. On the other, those favoring an underwater boat of tremendous motor power. Now then, although the latter hypothesis was completely admissible, it couldn't stand up to inquiries conducted in both the New World and the Old. That a private individual had such a mechanism at his disposal was less than probable. Where and when had he built it, and how could he have built it in secret? Only some government could own such an engine of destruction. In these disaster-filled times, when men taxed their ingenuity to build increasingly powerful aggressive weapons, it was possible that, unknown to the rest of the world, some nation could have been testing such a fearsome machine. The Chassapot rifle led to the torpedo, and the torpedo has led to this underwater battering ram, which in turn will lead to the world putting its foot down. At least, I hope it will. But this hypothesis of a war machine collapsed in the face of formal denials from the various governments. Since the public interest was at stake, and transoceanic travel was suffering, the sincerity of these governments could not be doubted. Besides, how could the assembly of this underwater boat have escaped the public notice? Keeping a secret under such circumstances would be difficult enough for an individual, and certainly impossible for a nation whose every move is under constant surveillance by rival powers. So, after inquiries conducted in England, France, Russia, Prussia, Spain, Italy, America, and even Turkey, the hypothesis of an underwater monitor was ultimately rejected. And so, the monster surfaced again, despite the endless witticisms heaped on it by the popular press, and the human imagination soon got caught up in the most ridiculous ichthyological fantasies. After I arrived in New York, several people did me the honor of consulting me on the phenomenon in question. In France, I had published a two-volume work in quarto entitled The Mysteries of the Great Ocean Depths. Well-received in scholarly circles, this book had established me as a specialist in this pretty obscure field of natural history. My views were in demand. As long as I could deny the reality of the business, I confirmed myself to a flat no comment. But soon, into the wall, I had to explain myself straight out. In this vein, the Honorable Pierre Aronnax, professor at the Paris Museum, was summoned by the New York Herald to formulate his views no matter what. I complied. Since I could no longer hold my tongue, I let it wag. 
I discuss the question in its every aspect, both political and scientific, and this is an excerpt from a well-paddled article I published in the issue of April 30th. Therefore, I wrote, after examining these different hypotheses one by one, we are forced, every other supposition having been refuted, to accept the existence of an extremely powerful marine animal. The deepest parts of the ocean are totally unknown to us. No soundings have been able to reach them. What goes on in those distant depths? What creatures inhabit or could inhabit those regions 12 or 15 miles beneath the surface of the water? What is the constitution of these animals? It's almost beyond conjecture. However, the solution to this problem submitted to me can take the form of a choice between two alternatives. Either we know every variety of creature populating our planet, or we do not. If we do not know every one of them, if nature still keeps ichthyological secrets from us, nothing is more admissible than to accept the existence of fish or cetaceans of new species or even new genera animals with a basically cast-iron constitution that inhabit strata beyond the reach of our soundings, in which some development or other, an urge or a whim if you prefer, can bring to the upper level of the ocean for long intervals. If, on the other hand, we do know every living species, we must look for the animal in question among those marine creatures already catalogued. And in this event, I would be inclined to accept the existence of a giant narwhal. The common narwhal, or sea unicorn, often reaches a length of 60 feet. Increase its dimensions fivefold or even tenfold, then give the cetacean a strength in proportion to its size while enlarging its offensive weapons, and you have the animal we're looking for. It would have the proportions determined by the officers of the Shannon, the instrument needed to perforate the Scotia, and the power to pierce a steamer's hull. In essence, the narwhal is armed with a sort of ivory sword, or lance, as certain naturalists have expressed it. Its king-sized tooth is hard as steel. Some of these teeth have been found buried in the bodies of baleen whales, which the narwhal attacks with invariable success. Others have been wrenched, not without difficulty, from the undersides of vessels that narwhals have pierced clean through, as a gimlet pierces a wine barrel. The museum at the Faculty of Medicine in Paris owns one of these tusks with a length of 2.25 meters and a width at its base of 48 centimeters. All right then. Imagine this weapon to be ten times stronger, and the animal ten times more powerful. Launch it at a speed of 20 miles per hour. Multiply its mass times its velocity, and you get just the collision we need to cause the specified catastrophe. So until information becomes more abundant, I plump for a sea unicorn of colossal dimensions, no longer armed with a mere lance, but with an actual spur, like ironclad frigates or those warships called rams 
whose mass and motor power it would possess simultaneously. This inexplicable phenomena is thus explained away, unless it's something else entirely, which, despite everything that has been cited, studied, explored, and experienced, it's still possible. These last words were cowardly of me, but as far as I could, I wanted to protect my professorial dignity and not lay myself open to laughter from the Americans, who then, who when they do laugh, laugh raucously. I had left myself a loophole, yet deep down, I had accepted the existence of the monster. My article was hotly debated, causing a fine old uproar. It rallied a number of supporters. Moreover, the solution it proposed allowed for free play of the imagination. The human mind enjoys the impressive visions of unearthly creatures. Now and then the sea is precisely their best medium, the only setting suitable for the breeding and growing of such giants, next to which such land animals as elephants or rhinoceroses are mere dwarves. The liquid masses support the largest known species of mammals and perhaps conceal mollusks of incomparable size or crustaceans too frightful to contemplate, such as hundred-meter lobsters or crabs weighing 200 metric tons. Why not? Formerly in prehistoric days, land animals, quadrupeds, apes, reptiles, birds, were built on a gigantic scale. Our creator cast them using a colossal mold that time has gradually made smaller. With its untold depths, couldn't the sea keep alive such huge specimens of life from another age? This sea that never changes while the land masses undergo almost continuous alteration? Couldn't the heart of the ocean hide the last remaining varieties of these titanic species? for whom years are centuries and centuries millennia. But I mustn't let these fantasies run away with me. Enough of these fairy tales that time has changed for me into harsh realities. I repeat, opinion had crystallized as to the nature of this phenomenon, and the public accepted without argument the existence of a prodigious creature that had nothing in common with the fabled sea serpent. Yet if some saw it as a purely scientific problem to be solved, more practical people, especially in America and England, were determined to purge the ocean of this daunting monster to ensure the safety of transoceanic travel. The industrial and commercial newspapers dealt with the question chiefly from this viewpoint. The Shipping and Mercantile Gazette, the Lloyd's List, France's packet bow and maritime and colonial review, all the rags devoted to insurance companies who threatened to raise their premium rates were unanimous on this point. Public opinion being produced, the states of the Union were the first in the field. In New York, preparations were underway for an expedition designed to chase this narwhal. A high-speed frigate 
the Abraham Lincoln was fitted out for putting to sea as soon as possible. The naval arsenals were unlocked for Commander Farragut, who pressed energetically forward with the arming of his frigate. But, as it always happens, just when a decision has been made to chase the monster, the monster put in no further appearances. For two months, nobody heard a word about it. Not a single ship encountered it. Apparently the unicorn had gotten wise to these plots being woven around it. But people were constantly babbling about the creature, even via the Atlantic Cable. Accordingly, the wags claimed that this slippery rascal had waylaid some passing telegram and was making the most of it. So the frigate was equipped for a far-off voyage and armed with fearsome fishing gear. But nobody knew where to steer it. And the patience grew until on June 2nd word came that the Tampico, a steamer on the San Francisco line sailing from California to Shanghai, had sighted the animal again three weeks before in the northerly seas of the Pacific. This news caused intense excitement. Not even a 24-hour breather was granted to the Commander Farragut. His provisions were loaded on board. His coal bunkers were overflowing. Not a crewman was missing from his post. To cast off, he needed only fire and stoke his furnaces. Half a day's delay would have been unforgivable, but Commander Farragut wanted nothing more than to go forth. I received a letter three hours before the Abraham Lincoln left its Brooklyn Pier. The letter read as follows. Pierre Aranax, professor at the Paris Museum, Fifth Avenue Hotel, New York. Sir, if you would like to join the expedition on the Abraham Lincoln, the government of the Union will be pleased to regard you as France's representative in this undertaking. Commander Farragut has a cabinet at your disposal. Very cordially yours, J.B. Hobson, Secretary of the Navy. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.